0: All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about what is going on in Ukraine. Let's do our Ukraine update that we do every start of the week. Let's see uh, Ugladar. We have the Russians advancing. There was a Ukraine counterattack, which from what I gathered did not go too well. You have the details. There we have uh, Bakhmut the russians have taken another uh important uh settlement in and around uh bakhmut as well and we have of course the the escalation we've gone from tanks and now fighter jets are on the table and long range missiles and i think that's that's everything i mean there's a lot to to discuss but I've, i'm trying to you know sometimes it's just so much so much information that that you forget Certain things. Oh, Boris Johnson, by the way, since you're you're in the UK, Boris Johnson is giving an interview. He was interviewed by the BBC for a documentary called Putin vs. the West. It's kind of a funny story. Maybe you'll get into it towards the second half of the video. And Boris Johnson said that when he was calling Putin, Putin threatened him. He threatened. Said as he was being interviewed by the BBC. Anyway, that's anyway, maybe that's
1: little We'll, a we'll, we'll, we'll get... subject for us to, to discuss. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Anyway, let's start with what's going on on the ground.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you summed it up very uh, absolutely clearly. I mean, the focus of the fighting has been Donbass, and I would again remind everybody that you know we've been saying all along, ever since the war began, way back in February, March. Lots of things going on at that time around Kiev, or so it seemed, you know, all the media focus was on that. Media focused on all sorts of other places. The real war has always been fought in Donbass. This is where the big armies are. This is where the bulk of the Russian military is. This is where the bulk of the Ukrainian military is. And the fighting since August has been focused primarily, principally, around bakhmut this town it's not a huge place 75,000 people before the war but clearly an important strategic position. The Ukrainians are defending it through thick and thin. they've been told by the Pentagon to stop doing so. Pentagon has told them that they're losing more men and machines that they can afford defending this place. The German intelligence agency, the BND has said exactly the same thing. The Ukrainians are paying no attention to that advice. They're still reinforcing their forces around Bakhmut. We've had more reports to that effect today. And there's some argument about how many troops Ukraine actually has in and around Bakhmut. But I've seen estimates ranging from 30,000 all the way up to 100,000. Now, 100,000 is much too high. 30,000 might be. Roughly right, but these are some of Ukraine's best troops, and they're bogged down. Basically, they're tied down, trying to defend Bachmut. And we got more reports over the last couple of hours. Hello. Yeah, I just
0: want to interrupt you. I don't. Want, I, well, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just have to ask you a question, Alexander. Do you do you believe that the Pentagon is uh, is telling uh, Ukraine? privately as well to, uh, Elensky privately as well to pull out of Bakhmut? Or could this be another indication that there are two sides to the Pentagon? One is perhaps telling him to continue pouring forces in Bakhmut, and maybe there's another part that's telling him to pull out. And I just, before you get into another area, before you start talking about, um, uh, before you start talking about Ugladar, I just, I wanted to ask you, do you actually believe that privately, the Pentagon is telling Elensky, get out of Bakhmut? Or could this be an indication that something, that there's a split? I, I don't know, I just wanted to ask you well, that question.
1: This well, is, this is the big question, because this is what we're leading up to. Now, I'm going to say straight away, and maybe we should come to that straight away and not get into the weeds of the Battle of Bakhmut. All, well, all I'm going to say about Bakhmut is the Russians are clearly winning. You said correctly, they've captured another settlement, which is a place called Blago Noye, for those who are interested, all the indications are that Bakhmut is going to be encircled very soon. And there's now a real possibility that the Russians are aiming to encircle all the other Ukrainian troops around Bakhmut. And the Russians are also clearly working towards capturing this other town, Vuglada, a smaller place about the size of Solodar, but it's strategically important in the south. The really big drama, the very interesting thing, is what is going on in the US. And there's clearly two factions at work. And maybe this is where we really get on it. Because we've now had a whole series of reports. On the one hand, we've had... I think they are confirmed reports that the military, the uniformed military, the people and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in other words, General Milley and his people before Christmas told the White House the war is reached a stalemate position, it's going to deteriorate very soon. We need to try and negotiate some kind of way out of this. And we've had a whole slew of reports now appearing. There was a very important report by the RAND Corporation, which said that it is not in the US interest to wage a protracted war in Ukraine, that it's getting more dangerous for the US with every single day. And if you read the report carefully, its language is it doesn't want to stray from the orthodoxies, but you can clearly see that behind it all, there's concerns that Ukraine is going to lose the war and there's going to be a debacle and that the US is overinvested in Ukraine. And then you had another report by the CSIS. <laughs> the uh, I, well, I'm not going to give its name. I never can quite remember it, but it's a big report looking at the U.S. military industrial economy. It shows the U.S. is depleting its weapon stocks. Its military is running down. It can't keep up with Ukraine's demand. De- de- demands for 155 millimeter shells it's also as we now know running out of high mass missiles all kinds of other things so the military the uniformed military are extremely worried there's the other side and this is the civilian leadership in the pentagon also people like lloyd austin who is clearly despite the fact that he he comes from the military he's a political appointee, he's connected with the military-industrial complex, and the neocons, who are both in the Pentagon, and also in the State Department, Blinken, uh, Victoria Newland, who, as I say, gave her testimony to Congress the other day, other officials like that, they are dead against any de-escalation of the war. And they I am sure, are giving Ukraine the opposite advice. They're telling Ukraine, look, the military may be telling you one thing. We're telling you something completely different. Fight for every inch of ground. Keep the war going. Uh, tanks are on the way. Don't worry. attack missiles are on the way too. Fighter jets will soon follow. Drones will probably be coming your way also. Keep fighting. You, we're with you all the way, we're going to get the Europeans to support you. All the way, we're sending you more money, $16 billion from the IMF. <laughs> That's also on the way. So keep fighting, don't pull back. And at the same time, because the military is saying one thing, we're floating all these bogus peace proposals. We discussed this in the last program. You know, uh, 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 you know re- Ukraine should be allowed to rearm But at the same time, stay outside NATO, but Russia should pull out of Crimea so that Ukraine can reoccupy it whenever it chooses. So you have this, you have this, it's not exactly a debate. It's all going on under the surface. But you're starting to see, I think, some degree of push and pull within the US. I think the uniformed military are becoming concerned. And the reason they're becoming concerned is not because they are soft. It's because they see the way the military thing is going. And they are becoming worried that their stocks of weapons are running down, despite the fact that they are worried increasingly about conflict with China. Now, we'll come to that later. But that's, I think, their priority. They are more concerned about China. They're less Interested in Ukraine. They see that as a sideshow. Whereas the neocons, the White House, the civilian officials in the Pentagon, a number of neocon minded generals, Lloyd Austin, all of them, their priority remains Ukraine because they're still fixated with Zhuzhinsky's grand strategy. They want to break up Russia, fragment it, obliterate the country. And then uh, come go after China instead. That's their track. So it's it's an argument about tactics, not about eventual outcome. They both sides want to come after China eventually, but there is an argument about tactics. And the military people in the Pentagon are worried about the speed that through which Ukraine is burning up its uh, equipment. They want to slow that down. So they want Ukraine to pull out of places like Bakhmut in order to preserve its forces and basically to keep up the war in a more sustainable way. So I think that's what's, that's the big story. That's what's really going on. And that's, that's the nature of the debate that's taking place.
0: Yeah, I would say it's, uh, it's, a, it's a question of military reality versus political reality and those two just don't match up the the military reality is that we're losing ukraine is burning through all of the equipment that we're giving them they need to slow down otherwise we're not going to have anything more to send them and the russians are uh, are achieving their goals which which always have been the demilitarization of uh, of ukraine the political reality is that if Ukraine admits to everything that the military people are telling them, well, then there's going to be a whole lot of political fallout. There's going to be uh, a lot of of countries, perhaps a lot of leaders, citizens in various countries in the collective West, who are going to say, we don't want to continue with this. I I believe that is why they they always throw the line out there, NATO is not a party to this war, or uh, you know, the UK is not a party to this war, Greece is not a party to this war, because the minute a prime minister or a president were to come out and say, yes, we are a party to this war, like Annalena Baerbach let it out the other day, then the people, the citizens of that country are going to say, what? Are you, telling, are you telling us that we're at war with Russia? And, and, and they can't have that. That's why they always have to throw that line out there. We're not a party to the war. We're sending them this and that and attack and long-range missiles and tanks and everything. But we're not a party to the war, no. uh, you know, fellow citizens. No. Because they know it would be political suicide. So, I mean, it really is military reality versus, versus political reality. And they're just, they're not aligned.
1: Absolutely. That is, that is entirely correct. And I think that is true and it's going to get worse. Of course, military reality... Is the reality that prevails or ought to prevail in a war, <laughs> because ultimately it's the military that dictate the outcome, the outcomes of wars. If the military are saying the war is lost, then you, could, the politicians, can you know, in theory, say what they want, but they can't reverse that, except of course by escalating to levels which would be extremely dangerous. And that is the danger. Now, you know, it's extraordinary to see also how there's been this inflation of language now. So Poland is now openly talking about the need to fragment Russia. The Polish MP, MEP, spoke about the fact that the Russians shouldn't have all these raw materials. You know, they should belong to the people who live there, but not the Russians, apparently. Um, um, You know, we have uh, uh, this extraordinary intensification, radicalization of rhetoric. And I'm going to say something else, by the way. I, I think that in Europe, amongst Europeans, it's not just the American uniformed military that are becoming concerned. I've done a number of programs, we've done a number of programs about German generals, General Kuya, General Wad, another German general, I can't remember his name, who's spoken out as well, All of them saying, you know, why are we sending weapons to Ukraine? We're depleting our militaries. We are weakening our own militaries at this time. We can't keep up with Ukrainian demands. Ukrainian demands are insatiable. The head of the British military two weeks ago said the same thing. This is, I should say, the British Army, not the British military. But General Sir Patrick Sanders came out and said, these tanks that we're sending to Ukraine are going to weaken the overall position of the British Armed Forces. And there's just been a report in, I think, Sky News, uh, based upon conversations between the British and the Americans, which admitted that the British military is in a terrible condition, that um, it would take it at least five to ten years before it got to the point of being able to field one division of twenty-five to 30,000 men and that it doesn't have the capabilities to defend itself from the kind of missile strikes that Ukraine is experiencing on a regular basis now. So, you know, you get the military saying one thing, the politicians saying another. The politicians escalating, heightening their rhetoric, making even more extreme demands. The military saying, slow down, this isn't making any sense. Ukraine is losing. we're burning up our weapons. we're weakening ourselves. This isn't a sustainable position, and at some point something will break
0: Yeah, the politicians don't want to lose their power, and that's the frightening part is how obsessed with power they, they have become and and the frightening part is that they'll lead us to a place where where it's just going to be a catastrophe in order for them to save their their own position of, uh, of power. But uh, the the statement from the uh, the Polish MEP Anna Fotkia uh, is her name it, it, it's insane, just insane stuff. But I, I have to ask you uh, a question with regards to to the rhetoric coming out of uh, Eastern European states and the Baltic nations. They're being led towards. Towards a catastrophic situation, towards a disaster, is, is how I'm I'm seeing it. Because while they're trying to pump up escalation and they're driving towards more and more escalation, more severe sanctions, and all of this uh, all of this stuff directed at Russia trying to, to hurt Russia trying to dismember Russia, trying to uh, to balkanize Russia. And they're openly saying it now. We want the balkanization of Russia and we want their natural resources. As they keep on ramping this up, I see Russia making moves like expelling the Estonian ambassador, expelling the Latvian ambassador, drawing down the embassy presence of these nations in uh, in Russia and and I do believe the ambassadors of Latvia and Estonia have been have been expelled and given a couple of weeks to leave I, I'm not 100% sure on that but I know that Russia is is telling the embassies in Moscow that they have to lower personnel in other words Russia is is sending diplomatic signals along the lines of you know we're we're done with dialogue. And if you guys are, are coming after us, we're going to come after you. And there's going to be no one in Russia, no one in, in Moscow, in some embassy to, to try to open up any channels of communication. I mean, Russia is, you know, when you see the, the embassies starting to, to be cut off. That, to me, is like an initial signal that things are going to get very bad for the country that is being cut off and that's why i worry for these baltic nations and i worry for poland and these eastern european nations because i don't think their citizens are quite understanding you know what the other side is doing yes. and what the other side yes. is signaling
1: well indeed and can i just add something else which is that i think behind all this extremely the extreme radicalization of the rhetoric the poles and the bolts uh, the leaders at least, have some understanding that the window, the time window, is closing. And they're aware, obviously, that the militaries in the United States, the uniformed militaries in the United States, Britain, Germany, are becoming increasingly unhappy. I mean, that, that, that kind of information is getting communicated and passed around. I know less about the French military, but I'm sure that's the case too. Notice that France up to this point is not sent tanks for example and i suspect it's because the military in france are very strongly opposed to any such move so the poles and the Bolts understand that and i think they must be very very scared that at some point they're going to be left high and dry they've taken this extreme position with respect to russia and their nightmare must be that the United States, Germany, finally say, enough, this has gone too far. We have to pull back. We have to seek a compromise, at which point, what do the Poles and the Balts do? I've said this many times, you're talking about the Baltic states. They are over depending upon the United States in order to try to achieve objectives that are way beyond their power. And the risk they're running is that the United States is far away. It's a global superpower. It has interests all around the world. It can't maintain unremitting attention focused on the Baltic states. So the United States could one day say, well, look, this isn't really that important for us anymore. You are not that important for us anymore. At which case, the Baltic states, little countries that they are, will find themselves with the Americans gone. And, of course, the Russians are always there on their doorstep. So I think that there is, behind it all, behind all this fierce rhetoric, this enormously, this this constant insecurity that, you know, the Russian colossus is, is there. This is our last chance, in a way, to try to knock it to pieces before America perhaps rethinks its strategic relationships. Before the military, the US is enough. Before uh, um, powerful forces in the United States say, well, you know, let's not concentrate on Europe so much, on Russia so much, because our real problems are in the Pacific. So I think that's the, that's the Baltic states. Now, Poland is, of course, a different situation. It's a much bigger country, much more powerful country. It has a convincing military which the baltic states don't it doesn't it's not as you know threatened as the baltic states might conceivably be but it's the same calculus again and of course if america drifts away (laughs) which it might do i mean you know there's a lot more debate about all of this in the us than there is in europe but if america drifts away then of course it's possible that the germans and the Pol- and the russians might again come to some kind of an understanding with each other in which case poland is in a very very difficult place indeed so i completely agree they are they are taking increasingly reckless risks um, because they don't know how to draw back and you see that today i mean i think it was the polish defense minister came out with an extraordinary statement. He says, you know, does Germany really want Ukraine to win or does Germany want Ukraine to lose the war? I mean, things of this kind, which can't go down well in Germany. And uh, there's a report in Der Spiegel that Scholz didn't want to send the tanks to Ukraine. He's very, very angry about the way he was pushed into doing it. I suspect... He probably said to himself, Well, the Americans will never send tanks, or will never promise to send tanks. So hiding behind the Americans gets me out of having to do it myself. But of course the Americans said they would send tanks. Only turns out no not any time soon. And so he was pushed into sending tanks, but he's very unhappy, very angry apparently, saying that some people don't understand the risks. Uh, saying that he 's unhappy with some of the members of his own government and their be- bellicose language and it 's not difficult to guess who he's thinking about at the moment he 's not really able or doesn't feel himself able to speak out he is as we said a weak man, not particularly <laughs> strong in you know the upper places, but I suspect that these feelings are echoed by lots of people in Germany. So I think that, you know, all of these things are now starting to play out, and they will play out even more, because with the Russians pressing forward in Donbass, with the Russians likely to gain control of Donbass fairly soon, with the Russians quite possibly pushing beyond Donbass towards the Dnieper, you can be absolutely certain that at that point, the hard line is in Washington, in Brussels, in the Baltic States, in Poland, and of course in London, will start to demand much more than anything we've seen up to now. And the militaries will be even more unhappy and even more resistant. Popular opinion in some European countries will start to shift. In Germany, which is now almost certainly in recession, by the way, the latest economic news out of Germany was very bad. Uh, um, that already you can see that opinion is now sharply divided with the trend going towards the anti-war people as opposed to the pro-war one. In France, that's always been the case. And as I said, that isn't going to allow the, the Poles and the Bolts and the British and all of those people are not going to respond to that by pulling back. On the contrary, they're going to try and triple and double down and try to bully and uh, intimidate and pressure their so-called allies to stand with them even more because they're very, very nervous of what will happen if those allies eventually pull back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. By the way, C S I S stands for the Center for Strategic and International
1: Studies. That's right. Yeah. A nonpartisan a think tank, as it likes to claim. Yeah, I it's think a fascinating some with
0: Georgetown. Exactly. I I
1: know. Yeah. Exactly. It's a fascinating report, by the way, if you read it. I mean it really is. I mean, it it, it highlights all the things we've been saying (laughs) for some time. You know, Brian Valetic and others have been saying that, you know, that the U.S. military-industrial complex is not what it was. And, you know, you can't just crank out tanks and machines in the way that it did. I mean, it's clear the U.S. military, the uniformed military, did not want to send tanks to Ukraine. I mean, they were saying only about a week ago, we're not going to even send one. And then, of course, along comes Biden- He comes along and says, we're going to send some. Lloyd Austin does exactly what Biden tells him. Biden apparently was pressured by uh, uh, some Democrat Congress people and some rhino Republicans. So you see the kind of forces that are in play. And um, it's a battle that is being fought out. But the, the, the hardliners are still in the ascendant. And they're still giving that kind of advice to Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, all the things I said about the insecurities of the Baltic states and in Poland—they are much greater in Ukraine itself. There, they must be really worried about, you know, American support perhaps weakening at some point. And so, they are now demanding all the weapons they they can get—the fighter jets, the atacams missiles more tanks, more infantry fighting vehicles, more shells, more rockets, who knows what eventually. But uh, they want them because they want to lock the Americans in. And that's what it's ultimately all about. They want to commit the Americans so deep that the Americans can't pull back. That's what the Ukrainians want. That's what the Poles want, that's what the Bolts want, that's what people like Baerbock and the British also want.
0: Yeah, that's that's the point of this exercise is to get American boots on the ground.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: NATO boots, German boots, whatever it is, but, but the, the key for them is can we get American troops into Ukraine? Once we get those first American troops in Ukraine and they're firing. At Russians, and I'm not talking mercenaries and all of this stuff, contracted soldiers, the real American boots. Once we get that, we've locked them in. We've locked America in. Now we've got a chance to to come out of this. And I I find it reckless, insane, immature, stupid that you have these leaders in these Baltic nations and these leaders in these nations in Eastern Europe that actually think that they're going to be the ones – are going to be able to, to do to Russia what so many other historical figures and so many other more powerful empires and nations tried to do and have failed. But these people, these are going to be the people that actually succeed. Yes. I find the level of, of narcissism and hubris off the freaking scales.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And for the U.S., to, to pull out their support of Eastern Europe, of NATO, of the EU, all it really takes is a little more de-dollarization. Yes. Once the U.S. doesn't have the, the capability to continue to print money and to support Europe, which is what American taxpayers do, you know, they're, they, Europe is like they're, they have to take care of Europe now. And once once the U.S. doesn't have that capability anymore, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah, and the U.S. is going to have to, rightly so. The U.S. is going to have to, yeah, they're going to have to focus on America, Absolutely. American citizens, America's uh, best interest. That that day is coming, and it's and it's fast approaching.
1: Yes, yes. And,
0: and you know, I just uh, I just can't comprehend how these leaders actually believe that a civilization that has lasted a thousand years. And has been invaded multiple times and is still standing and standing stronger now. Is, is going to be taken out by some North, North American alliance treaty organization that has been around for 70 years and is run by a guy named Stoltenberg. Yes. Yeah, what or you're right. Or Ursula Lavender I... Crazy and all well, these people.
1: It's, it's, yeah. this, is, this is nuts. Well, it's, 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 it is nuts. And it looks, by the way, of course, it's also very dangerous, nuts. Because, I mean, one of the most alarming things is, you know, this Polish MP, you, you gave her name, I didn't catch it, but whatever. She comes up with these
0: uh, crazy... things. Yeah. Anna for, yeah. for, something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, she comes up with these yeah. crazy things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who comes out in Western capitals and criticises her? I mean, you'd have thought that these kind of comments would provoke uproar in uh, the West. You know, people would come out and dissociate themselves. The US government, the British government, the German government, the French government would dissociate themselves from this sort of thing. They would criticise her. They'd tell the Poles, you know, and the Bolts to, sh- you know, put up and shut up, which they can do, I mean, you know, all these guns, kind of, but they don't do it. Instead, they are appeasing these people, feeding their sense of, self-importance and narcissism that you talked about and of course these little countries with all the you know with these leaders because you mustn't assume that everybody in these places in the baltic states is like this but you know these leaders are as a result leading us all forward into this crazy venture Whereas you said you know other people, Napoleon, Charles XII of Sweden, uh, uh, you know, the Mongol Khans, uh, um, you know, the mustachio gentleman from Austria, they all failed. <laughs> and, you know, the idea that, you know, all of these people from Estonia, that Estonia is going to succeed, or even Poland is going to succeed, where all the, these other people failed. I mean, it's just fantasy. What they are doing, though, what they are managing to do is create a very deep crisis And an existential one, not just for the Russians or not even primarily for the Russians, but certainly for themselves and arguably for the entire North Atlantic European structure that you're talking about. But just to also finish your point that the time window that they have is small is absolutely true. I mean, it depends on dollar supremacy, which is waning. It depends on the US continuing to subordinate its overriding strategic interests to the obsessions of these people in the Baltic states. That's also true. The time window is small. It's closing. But as we see, they're heightening their rhetoric. They're escalating their demands. They're bragging about the fact that they've given Ukraine all their weapons. They're demanding more weapons for themselves. Before long, they'll be de- demanding nuclear weapons be stationed on their own territory. They'll be demanding all of these things, and there is no one in the West who, so far, has the courage to restrain them or to basically not just restrain them yeah. to tell them to shut up. Yeah, I believe
0: Sweden is also in recession. I, I was reading. Yeah, that today, so, I think, well, as
1: well, can I just say something about that? I mean, we won't dwell on this too long they all are (laughs) i mean germany germany definitely is in recession of that i have absolutely no doubt Uh, but i'm sure that the entire eurozone economy is and the reason is simple they are understating their inflation rates i've been saying this for some time i i i have no doubt this is the case and that these recessionary problems are going to intensify let's Briefly talk about Boris, because as you correct yeah, I was going to say, let's lighten let's, it. Let's, let's, let's lighten end the video and lighten it up a bit. Your, it, your thoughts lighten.
0: on the, the well, BBC's I mean, three part, three part documentary called I Putin mean, versus the West.
1: So who do you go to for, you know, your authoritative view on Boris? You go to you on Putin, you go to Boris, a, a compulsive proverbial liar (laughs) somebody who wouldn't know the truth if he came along and hit him on the nose and of course you go to Boris and you accept Boris's accounts you know as authoritative and straightforward and you know you accept that Boris never tells the truth on any other subject at all but on Putin he is telling the absolute truth and of course this is a completely plausible story, because as I understand it, what Boris said was, you know, he spoke to Putin and Putin, you know, doing his, uh, uh, you know, Ernst Stavros Blofeld 007 Spectre impression comes along and says, well, Boris, you're selling all of these things to me, but I can launch a missile <laughs> directed specifically at you and you can be taken out in one minute. I mean, it's ludicrous stuff. It's ridiculous. Of course, Putin said no such thing, and uh, I mean, the Kremlin has now come out and said said as much. They said that um, what actually Putin was talking about was that if Ukraine joined NATO, um, Russian uh, uh, NATO missiles could strike at Moscow within minutes. That was what Putin said, but of course. Boris turns that round. He again uh, engages in his usual grandiosity. It was all a threat directed at himself (laughs) that Putin was going to launch a missile to take Boris himself out, even in London. I mean, and this nonsense gets republished in the BBC and is taken seriously by the British media today. I will I will say, in utter fairness, that um, eventually, very, very belatedly, the British media today has started to report Peskov's rebuttal. But, you know, there's still lots of people who want to prefer Boris's account. I mean, to my mind, it shows what a fundamentally unserious person Boris is, and it highlights, again, the very reckless role he's played in this whole affair.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the continual demonization of Putin, which they then transfer as the demonization of Russia so that people can uh, can hate Russians and the uh, the conflict against Russians, the sanctions against Russians are justified because Putin is evil, hence Russians are evil. Hence, what we're doing is is good. And we're the good guys. You know, Putin, Putin versus the West. It's one guy versus the entire West. And Putin is is a madman. I think the sun's title was actually Mad Vlad. That's what the sun ran with. Mad Vlad threatens Boris Johnson. Putin's mad. He's sick. He's on medication. He's on his last legs. He may press the bomb any moment, the red button, any moment and send the missiles flying because he's, he's out of his mind. And, oh, my God, he's threatening poor, poor, honest Boris Johnson, poor Churchill, the Churchillian Boris Johnson. He's threatening him. But Boris, you know, he he was shocked, but he stood tall and he came to Olensky's aid. I mean, the whole it, 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 it's absolutely ridiculous.
1: Yes. But they run with it. And this is the BBC. This is the great BBC. BBC. Exactly. Exactly. I I mean, it is astonishing that they do run with it. And it's astonishing that this story, as I said, is treated seriously by so many people in Britain. But unfortunately, it is. And unfortunately, in Britain, there are a lot of people, far too many people, perhaps most people, who are running with this story as well, because this is the thing. In the United States, there is a genuine debate about all of this. I mean, there you can see even the New York Times sometimes comes up with the odd article which questions you know, some of the narrative. The Wall Street Journal as well. Uh, even the Washington Post, they published a piece saying, well, you know, maybe it wasn't the Russians who blew up... Uh, nor, the Nord Stream pipelines. Maybe it was someone else. You don't say who, but you know, maybe someone else did it. But in in Britain, there isn't a, there isn't anybody of significance who comes out and talks against this narrative. I mean, to the extent that we even have an alternative media here, I mean, they're all still They're all also joining in and running with this story. I mean, you know, all the outlets that you know. British people go to to find news that's different from what they read in the Guardian. On this issue of Ukraine, go along with the official line, including, of course, what Boris says.
0: Yeah, it's a shame that the BBC doesn't do a documentary on uh, the loan that uh, Boris was getting <laughs> from. Related to the BBC, to, the, to the, what we talked about in our last absolutely. video. Perhaps they absolutely. should do a documentary on that.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and on themselves. I mean, high time that they did. But no, we're not going to see anything like that. <laughs> not anytime <laughs> soon. Don't worry about that. After all, after all, Boris has to be protected because uh, as I said, the madman in the Kremlin is going to launch his missile at him at any moment. But as you correctly said, this Tuchelian figure, he, he wasn't going to be intimidated by threats like that.
0: The funniest part is—is is I saw some of the, the videos of that interview, and the only person that looks like he's mad, like mad isn't as not crazy, is Boris Johnson. I mean, the guy's a, a freaking mess. he uh, was yes. wise. He's a mess. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you you put know.
1: yourself together for God's sakes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, I mean, I completely agree. But you know, you 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 still nonetheless prefer his account. <laughs> to uh, 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 putins even though as i said it's it's acknowledged fact in british politics that um boris says whatever he thinks will suit him at any particular moment and you know the truth is something that he doesn't really care too much about but you know apparently when it comes to putin anything boris says will go
0: yeah all right anyway we'll uh enter there at durand.locals.com We are also on Rockfin and go to the Durant shop, 10% off. Use the code good day. Take care.